Welcome to the Jesus Chronicles. I'm your host, Sandy Laws. This is episode number seven. Last time, I walked through Luke's version of the birth narrative. Remember that Luke tells the story from Mary's point of view. I left off with Luke's version right after Jesus was born, and the shepherds had come to the place where he lay in the manger. I still think it must have been really quite something to see, looking up at the dark night sky and seeing thousands of angels. I love that God selected the shepherds in the fields to be the first to know about Jesus. It sends a very powerful message about why Jesus came at all, to save everyone, including the lowest of the low. In this episode, I'll finish up with the last bits of Luke's story and then switch to Matthew's version of the Nativity story. So here we go. The story of Simeon and Anna. Luke concludes his narrative with a story about Joseph, Mary, and Jesus going to the temple in Jerusalem when Jesus was a newborn. This part of the story is often overlooked, but it's one of those stories in the Gospels that provides a transition in the storyline. Luke wants to be sure that we hear from two people, Simeon and Anna. Here's the story from Luke chapter 2. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. All right, it's been eight days since Jesus was born, as was and still is the Jewish custom. All male children had to be circumcised within days of being born. In the case of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, who were living in Bethlehem, chose to go to the temple in Jerusalem to present Jesus and have him circumcised. As was the custom when you presented your son for circumcision, you were to give an animal to be sacrificed. Mary and Joseph presented either a pair of doves or a pair of pigeons, reflecting their poor status. Luke then tells us about their encounter with Simeon. Now there was this man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. There's a lot to digest here, but to simplify it, just think of Simeon as a very pious person who had been given special insight about the coming of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. The day finally comes when Simeon is moved by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple. This was the day when he would finally meet the Savior of the world. He takes the baby Jesus into his arms and he announces that Jesus is a light 
for both the Gentiles and the Jews. He then shares a prophetic insight about Jesus with Mary and Joseph. Here's the rest of his story. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon shares what he knows about Jesus as given to him by the Holy Spirit. He also gives Mary a word of warning. What will happen to her son Jesus will pierce her soul. And of course, that is exactly what happens. Once again, this story may have well been given to Luke directly from Mary, since it is so personal. Well, Luke tells us one last story about a prophetess named Anna, who lived at the temple, spending day and night praying there. Luke tells us that Anna came up to Mary and Joseph and Simeon at that very moment and gave thanks to God and then spoke to everyone around them about how Jesus was the one who would redeem Jerusalem. Now, why would Luke share these two stories? I think it's because both Simeon and Anna confirm the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, and they point to a future event when Jesus would reveal himself as the Savior of the world. Luke also provides us with the only story we have about Jesus as a young man. When Jesus was 12, his family took him to Jerusalem for a Jewish festival. Jesus became separated from his parents, and after a frantic search, they found him at the temple, the place that Jesus called my father's house. This story seems to be a prelude into what is to come for Jesus. After this trip to Jerusalem, Jesus goes back to Nazareth with his parents. Luke tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I like this simple statement about Jesus as a young man growing into adulthood. Notice that we hear nothing more about Joseph from this point on in Luke's gospel. It leads us to assume that at some point, between Jesus's visit to the temple at age 12 and the beginning of his earthly ministry, Joseph has passed away. The birth of Jesus, Matthew's version. Matthew is the other gospel author who shares the story of Jesus's birth. Before I talk about what he wrote, let me tell you more about him. When we meet Matthew in the Bible, he is working as a licensed tax collector. Matthew had a stall set up on the road between Damascus and Echo. His stall was just outside the city of Capernaum, on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. This was a well-traveled road, and anyone who used it to transport goods to sell in the local market had to pay a tariff, or tax. We often hear about tax collectors in the New Testament. Let me tell you how the Romans collected taxes from the people of Israel. They would hire a chief tax collector locally. The chief tax collector managed a number of tax collectors, like Matthew,
Matthew collected taxes in his designated area and skimmed a little off the top. That's how he got paid. He would then turn over his collected funds to the chief tax collector, and that guy would also skim some off the top before he turned the money over to the Romans. More specifically, Matthew was a moksha, a tax collector who collected taxes just from travelers. The other type of tax collectors were the gabi, who levied general agricultural taxes and census taxes from people. You might recall in my earlier episodes, I talked about how the Jewish people were basically taxed into poverty. So all tax collectors were despised by the Jewish people, but the moksha were considered to be traitors. The Jewish people detested other Jews who acted as an agent of the horrible Roman Empire and its appointed Jewish king, Herod. Tax collectors like Matthew were ostracized in Jewish society. For example, they weren't allowed to testify in a court of Jewish law, nor could they give money to the temple in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders considered their money to be unclean, so they would not accept it. Apparently, Matthew didn't care about that. He made a good living, good enough to afford his own home. A smart businessman, Matthew knew how to read and write and was quite proficient at numbers. He would entertain his friends, including his fellow tax collectors, at lavish dinners. He lived far above the level of many other people in the region who only barely survived day to day. From this short explanation, you can see that Matthew was different from the other Jewish people in the village where he lived. Of course, his life changed dramatically when he encountered Jesus. I'll tell you more about that in series two of the Jesus Chronicles. Matthew wrote his book in the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew, around 60 AD. His book reflects his Jewishness. Throughout it, he emphasized how Jesus fulfills the prophecies from the Old Testament about a coming Messiah. He stressed that Jesus was the Messiah who had come to redeem all humankind. Matthew's version of the Nativity story focuses on Joseph's perspective. No explanation is given as to why, but perhaps it's because of the patriarchal nature of Jewish families in the first century A.D., Matthew includes different events and people in his nativity story, including the visit by the Magi, the appearance of an angel to Joseph, and the slaughtering of the innocents ordered by King Herod. I'll talk more about all of these things, so let's get started. Matthew chapter 1, The Birth of Jesus Here's what Matthew writes about Mary and Joseph in chapter 1 of his Gospel. You can hear how it is written from Joseph's perspective. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law 
and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Okay, let's digest this. Matthew, like Luke, tells us that Mary and Joseph were an engaged but not yet married couple, and that Mary became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. When Joseph discovered Mary's pregnancy, he naturally assumed that she had been unfaithful to him. Their betrothal could only be undone in two ways. Either Joseph exposed to everyone that Mary was pregnant and not by him, which would, of course, disgrace Mary and her family. Or he could go ahead and marry her, and then divorce her quickly and quietly. Here we see an inside glimpse of Joseph, and his thinking around this sudden and surprising turn of events. Jewish men could divorce their wives for virtually any reason. If Joseph divorced Mary after the wedding, he could just move on. Joseph settled on this solution. But God had something else in mind, and he made his plan known to Joseph through a dream. He sent an angel, I personally think it was Gabriel, to visit Joseph in his sleep. The angel delivered God's message about Mary and Jesus. When Joseph woke up, he changed his plan. He decided to take Mary as his wife, as the angel instructed him to do. Joseph and Mary were married, and out of deference to Mary's special status, they abstained from sex, choosing to wait until after she gave birth to Jesus. By the way, the inclusion of this text strongly implies that Joseph and Mary did consummate their marriage after the birth of Jesus. Chapter 2 The Story of the Magi and King Herod How long after Jesus' birth these next events from Matthew's story take place is not known. Perhaps just a few months or up to one or two years have passed since the birth of Jesus. Mary and Joseph are still living in Bethlehem. Let's go through the story of the Magi as told by Matthew in chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. 
When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler. I know you're curious about the Magi. I was too. Who are these mysterious men that come from the east? Well, here's what I found out through my research. The Magi were most likely part of a priestly caste from the lands to the east of Israel, including Arabia and Persia. As priests, they were responsible for overseeing the rituals and cultic life in their communities. They also studied the stars, tracking their movements as a sign of a possible future event. And they interpreted the dreams of their rulers. Their knowledge or wisdom was valued by the rulers who wanted to know what they saw in the sky and what they thought about their dreams. That's why they were known as the wise men. In Matthew's story, these magi from the east had studied the night sky and had come to believe that a new star in the sky was an indication that a great leader had been born. In fact, they found this idea to be compelling enough that they left their homes and headed out across the hundreds of miles of tough terrain to see if they were right. They headed west to Jerusalem. Though tradition tells us that there were three of them, notice that in Matthew's story, no number is specified. Tradition also makes them kings, but again, no mention of this in Matthew's story, and I think that is highly unlikely. It just sounds good in a song, you know, we three kings of Orient are, you know, that song we all sing at Christmas time. When the Magi got to Jerusalem, they began to ask around, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now this kind of talk in Jerusalem would have caused quite a stir. Their inquiry spread to King Herod because very little escaped him. Matthew says this about Herod's response to this information. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. The Magi's sudden appearance and their talk about a new king would clearly be seen as a threat by horrible Herod. Correctly surmising that the Magi had knowledge that he did not, Herod brought together his priests, scribes, and teachers of the law, and asked them to search the scripture to determine where the Jewish Messiah was prophesied to be born. Now this gives us some insight into Herod. He did not know the scriptures himself. His posse of Jewish advisors came back and told him that according to the prophet Micah, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Here's what happens next. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. 
As soon as you have found him, report to me, so that I may too go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Well, here's the sequence of events. Herod rounded up the Magi and brought them to him. In this meeting, we can be sure that Herod's motive was to find out as much as he could so he could minimize the threat to his dynasty. The Magi tell him the timing of the new star's appearance. With this piece of information, Herod would later order the execution of all male children two years old and under in and around Bethlehem. He was only concerned about the future threat to his kingdom certainly not about whether the prophecy was true and what the implications of that would be. Herod was a selfish, egotistical, power-hungry, horrible man. Herod then told the Magi to go and find the child and report back to him what they had learned. He lies and said it was because he too wanted to go and worship the child. Herod had gotten some of what he wanted out of the Magi, but he was hoping to get even more from them when they returned from their visit with Jesus. The Magi left Jerusalem and headed west towards Bethlehem. There they found the house where Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were staying. Upon entering the house, the Magi finally saw the child Jesus, who is the rightful king of Israel, the long awaited Messiah. Matthew tells us that the Magi bowed down to worship him. They opened their treasure chest and offered Jesus three gifts that formed an offering fit for a king. Next, the text tells us that the Magi were warned not to go back to Herod. But we again see divine intervention since the warning came to them in a dream. The Magi went back a different way, avoiding Jerusalem and Herod. The obvious question about this story is, what does it mean? Why does Matthew include this story in his account? And the answer is that this story is part of Matthew's effort to prove the identity of Jesus as the long-expected Messiah. The Magi represent the entire Gentile world. They come from outside of Israel and are the first Gentiles to acknowledge and worship Jesus. They are a symbol that the world recognize the identity of Jesus. All right, let's continue with the story. King Herod is furious about the Magi leaving the country without telling him where Jesus lived. And so, because he really was a horrid person, he makes a horrible decision. Here is Matthew's account of what happened. 
When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Once again, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. The angel tells Joseph to get his family out of Bethlehem immediately, and he does just that. I want to pause for a second and share my thoughts about Joseph. Joseph is the silent hero of the nativity story. Have you ever noticed that Joseph does not utter a single word? Not one word. Only Matthew gives us any glimpse into what Joseph was thinking. First, with his thoughts about whether or not to get married to Mary, and second, with his heroic action of taking Mary and Jesus out of Bethlehem in the middle of the night. I wish we could have heard directly from Joseph, but we don't. And this is again why we think Joseph died without recording his story. These two insights about Joseph could only have come from Mary or someone else in the family. But what a guy he was. He takes Mary as his wife, even though she is pregnant, and together they raise at least seven kids maybe even more, and he works his tail off to provide for his family. He's an excellent role model for Jesus. I think that we should acknowledge that. Back to the story. It is often noted that there are no external historical documents substantiating that Herod ordered the slaughtering of the innocents but it was totally within the keeping of his character. Given the small size of Bethlehem and the rural area surrounding it, there may have been as few as about 20 children who were murdered. And in the bloody history of King Herod, this would have been rather a small incident, worthy of no notice by ancient historians. How sad that is. The Holy Family lives in Egypt for an unknown amount of time. The angel appears once again to Joseph and tells him to return to Israel because the threat of Herod has passed with his death, which happened in 4 BC. Joseph settles his family in Nazareth in the Galilee region. Altogether, Mary and Joseph have five sons, Jesus, Joseph, James, Jude and Simon, all of whom are named in the Bible, 
and at least two daughters who are not named. What it means to us today. When you put both Luke and Matthew's stories together, you get a very complete depiction of the birth of Jesus. Quite clearly, the birth of Jesus was something extraordinary. From his conception to his birth, Jesus was unlike any other person ever born. This helps me to understand that Jesus was sent by God for a specific purpose, for a mission. But what else does this story tell us? Well, one, the nativity story affirms that Jesus was the Son of God. From the very beginning, he was recognized as the only Son of God and the King of the Jews. This is counter to all claims that say Jesus was simply a prophet or a good man with good ideas. His special status, his unique conception, his royal title negate that simplistic view of Jesus. Two, the incarnation of Jesus into a baby boy is the greatest miracle ever performed by God. It was a brilliant idea, and God did it out of love for us and a desire to save us from our sins. Jesus is God's answer to the problems of this world. Even though Jesus is not yet fully ruling the earth, as he will be with the ushering in of a new heaven and the new earth, his kingdom exists today on earth, and we are a part of it. Finally, the nativity story shows us the depth of God's involvement in bringing Jesus to earth. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. When he was born, the heavens rejoiced. God sent Gabriel and his angels to communicate to Zechariah, Mary, and Joseph about what was happening and why. God protected the Holy Family when the life of Jesus was in danger. All of these details speak to how intricately God was involved. It also serves as a reminder that he is just as intricately involved in the details of our lives. Thank you for listening to this series about the Nativity Stories on the Jesus Chronicles. Next time on the JC. Next time on the JC, I'll tell you the story about the history of Christmas and how it became what it is today. The Jesus Chronicles is written and produced by Sandra Laws. It is edited by Stacy Sepp. Check out my website at www.thejesuschronicles.org for more episodes, information, and illustrations. Thank you for listening.